Welcome to the Theopas Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James Bijan. Brian Motes is he's recording, and he'll be editing and making everything available to you. Thanks for listening. Uh, we wish you a, a happy near Advent. I don't know if this is going out uh, in Advent or just before Advent, but we, we uh, hope and pray that you have a blessed holiday season. Uh, and that uh, our podcast will be of some would be edifying and uh, get you in the mood for the season. We're not talking about uh, Advent or Christmas, but we are talking about Deuteronomy, and we'll try to find ways to bring Advent and Christmas into it. Uh, we're in the middle of a set of studies in Deuteronomy, and uh, we're going through the section of Deuteronomy that is organized according to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are given to us in Deuteronomy five in a slightly different way than they're given in Exodus 20. But that sets up a section of Deuteronomy that covers about 20 chapters that's organized in sequence according to the 10 words. And we're in the middle of the sixth word section. And in our accounting of the sixth word of the, of the 10 words, the sixth word is thou shalt not kill or thou shalt do no murder. And so we've been talking about cities of refuge. That's one of the, uh, one of the issues that comes up in this section to do with the an accidental manslaying and accidental bloodshed on the land and how that's dealt with. We've dealt with false witness and uh, malicious witness, witnesses of violence, and how that's dealt with because witnesses of violence can not only lie, but witnesses of violence are trying to do damage and trying to harm uh, their victims uh, and uh, using the power of a court, the power of, an, of elders in a town to harm uh, and to commit a kind of murder, or false witnesses who try to murder somebody's reputation by uh, by publicizing false things about about them. We talked about boundary stone uh, boundary markers rather in Deuteronomy 19 as uh, something having to do with the sixth word, "Thou shalt not murder." Moving a boundary stone, it can be a is a fraud. Is might be an act of fraud. Uh, it's an attack on a person's property, not on his person, but in the Torah person and property are bound up with each other. There's not a clean line between property and uh, persons. There are differences in the way that property crimes are treated from the way that uh, crimes against persons are treated. They're not identical, but there's more of a continuum than a sharp distinction. And in this case, we have assault on a boundary marker is treated as a violation of the sixth word. So those are the kinds of things we've been covering in Deuteronomy 19. In Deuteronomy 20, we have the Deuter Deuteronomic rules of war, and we spend a lot of time in the last episode talking about uh, just war theory and uh, the the uh, biblical and Christian understanding of how war is conducted. Uh, and then we plunged and looked about the first half of Deuteronomy 20, which basically has to do with the various exemptions that are given to people who are have not yet enjoyed the first fruits of their house, of their vineyard, of their marriage. They're given an opportunity to enjoy those first fruits before they're required to go out to war. In this second part of Deuteronomy 20 that we'll be covering this time, uh, we have two different large sections. One has to do with the actual conduct of battle, which is distinguished between the battles and how they're conducted against cities that are far off as opposed to cities that are near. Uh, and then the very end of the chapter, there's a rule concerning the treatment of fruit trees in conducting sieges. But I want to just uh, reflect just a moment on the the distinction between battles against cities that are far off and battles cities that are near. That distinction is brought into 
made explicit in verse 15, the rules in verses 10 through 14 that precede verse 15 are about how Israel is to conduct war towards cities that are at a distance. Uh, and then verses 16 through 18 are rules for conducting war against cities that are near. So verse 15 kind of bisects the section uh, into two different sets of rules. And I think the, the the difference between near and far cities, I think the the theological root of that links up with something we said in the last episode, which is that there's a liturgical dimension to uh, warfare. Verse 2 of chapter 20 uh, uses the verb karav when you are approaching the battle. Uh, verse 3 uses that same verb when you're approaching the battle. That's the verb in Leviticus that's used uh, to mean draw, drawing near to the Lord's presence, drawing near into the uh, courts of the tabernacle, drawing near into the holy place of the tabernacle. Karav is the verb that's used there, and that gives the battle a kind of liturgical dimension to it. And there are other other facets that we talked about last time that that uh, have this give a spiritual or, uh, or liturgical dimension to warfare. And I, I think, uh, I suspect, happy to have your thoughts on this, the rest of you all, I suspect that the distinction between near and far has to do with that, because uh, near and far is a liturgical principle. Um, if you're far off from the sanctuary, you're under certain regulations regarding purity and holiness. The nearer you get to the sanctuary, the stricter those rules are. Uh, Leviticus 21 and 22 lay this out with regard to the high priest. The high priest is the one that comes nearest to Yahweh, and so he's under the most stringent restrictions, the strictest rules of conduct for holiness and purity. Uh, the priests are under strict rules, but not as strict as the high priest, but stricter than laity. And then Israelites who come into the, the courts of the tabernacle, but don't come near to the Lord in his tent, they are under lighter restrictions and lighter rules of purity, not as, not as uh, stringent and uh, severe as the ones that are applied to the priests. So the closer you get to the Lord's presence, the the more severe the rules are or the more strict the rules are. It seems like we have a similar thing here. Cities that are far off from Israel, far off from the land, far off from the house of God, uh, are given an opportunity to, um, to make peace. Uh, and uh, that's the opening gambit for a uh, for a siege of a, of a city at a distance. But if you have cities that are near, that are closer to the Lord's house, closer to the place of his presence, uh, closer to Israel, uh, then there's a more severe conduct of war. There's harem warfare, a war of total destruction that's conducted against those Canaanite cities that are near to Israel and in, in the land that the Lord has claimed by putting his place there uh, and by establishing his name in that place. So there seems to be this dynamic, this kind of liturgical dynamic, a quasi-liturgical dynamic between near and far that parallels the way that the rules of the sanctuary work uh, in Leviticus and Numbers. Do you all buy that, or do you think that there might be another reason for that distinction? I'm persuaded. Woohoo! I, I had a general comment just to make about the, um, I guess about the whole nature of these kinds of texts um i think there's a concern when you perhaps look at these texts in a um secular light that basically um a religious feeling um that god is on your side can be used to justify all kinds of war as if you can just kind of slap 
God with us on your um, armor or, or shields or helmets or, or, or whatever. And, and then it's a relig- religiously sanctioned war. And um, I mean, obviously that's not the case, um, but I just feel that it's, it's very easy to kind of um, engage with these texts as if God isn't an active force in Israel's life and and history. And so, I mean, and this is sort of coming back to your point about liturgical war, Peter, that the, the whole idea is, is that God is with um, Israel. So he's talking about a situation, not where they feel that God is in their midst, but, you know, when you go out to war, sorry, this is now back in um, verse one, you know, you, you you're not to be afraid of them because the Lord of God, the Lord your God, is with you um, and will fight for you. Um, but obviously, that wasn't the case very often. And so we could think about the start of one Samuel when they go out to battle against the Philistines and and they lose and they realise that God isn't with them. Um, and so they then kind of try and simulate God's presence by taking the ark out with them, and God still isn't with them and and so they lose and i i i guess i'm mentioning this because it seems to me that the fear that this could be used to justify um all sorts of unjust religiously motivated war is almost predicated on on the fact that god isn't an active force in the world you know the the idea is that they could Go and wait. Israel could wage all these unjust wars and still win, and yet that just doesn't seem to be how Israel's history work. You know, when when the psalmist complains, doesn't he? Lord, you don't go out with our armies to battle in, anymore. It, it it just feels like um, uh, the reality of God is a um, a safeguard against Israel actually fighting and winning all sorts of unjust wars. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's a it's a important to keep in mind. Uh, we want to we want to f- figure out how Deuteronomy applies to Christians today, including Christian nations and Christian political orders. We, Deuteronomy is addressing political orders, and it does have it does reveal God's will for that. Uh, could be in indirect ways, but yeah, it's it's really important that we don't kind of, as you say, secularize the text and just kind of try to draw principles out and think that the principles apply without realizing that what we're actually talking about is a warfare that God is conducting along with Israel and that that's a crucial part of how all of the laws and rules of warfare are being arranged. I wonder if there are a few other kind of connections that we can make be, um, between these wars and other incidents. I mean, um, let not your heart faint or 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 melt you know i mean th- this was precisely what um the land of canaan's hearts did do as israel um came near you know they were aware of the reality of god's uh, of god in israel's midst and and were faint hearted you know um israel are not to be like that um and and so there's a a, a kind of because God is genuinely on their side, they don't have to have the kind of fear that the nations felt when God wasn't on uh, their side. So there's a, a kind of connection to the um, language of the conquest there. And there's also like this idea of um, in verse eight, people um, 
spreading fear. You know, you don't want the fearful going into war because it will spread fear amongst um, Israel. I mean, this was precisely what the um, faithless report of the spies in uh, Numbers did. It, it, it went through Israel like wildfire. You know, as soon as they brought back a, a fearful and unbelieving heart, all Israel became um, faithful. And it, it's just, um, I, don't, I don't know exactly what follows from that, but I, I'm just trying to think of kind of ways in which this um text might connect to the um narrative around it in quite concrete ways yeah that's um i think that's evident um, the connection with the spies is evident uh, from the very beginning of deuteronomy 20 uh in the connection between see and fear see and do not fear is the command and the verse for see and fear are kind of they're orally related in Hebrew. They sound sound similar. There's kind of a pun on it. What what the spies did was see and fear because the because their enemies were too numerous and too big and had horses and I had iron chariots, so they were, couldn't be overcome. So uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. The uh, Kadesh loomed very large as we saw at the beginning of our studies in Deuteronomy. It looms very large in in Moses' recounting of Israel's history. Kadesh was the uh, incident that was the place where Israel was camped when they sent the spies in, uh, and uh, so yeah, I think that's that's looming behind this this law. Uh, the, the first instance or the first example that uh, is given, the first set of rules, let me put it that way, in verses ten through fourteen here is about how Israel conducts a war with a city that is uh, at a distance, instead of requiring that city or uh, uh, instead of uh, uh, waging a harem war against that city and condemning it to destruction, Israel's first move is to offer it terms of peace. And if the city makes peace, then the city is brought under Israel's authority. They uh, are become forced labor and serve Israel. You might say that's a that's a harsh uh, that's a harsh treatment. But think of a background. If, if Israel is going against a city in order to take over the city, fight against the city, there's some cause. We presume that there's some just cause. Uh, and the alternatives are that the Lord gives them the city, and uh, then the rest of this the rest of this law kicks into gear, and there's an even more devastating consequence for the city. Or they become forced laborers. It's kind of Gibeonites. If you want to have a have a, a, a historical example. Gibeonites pretend to be from a distant place, uh, come to Joshua, and they're incorporated into Israel as servants uh, to the Israelites. So it looks like it, it can look like a kind of a harsh outcome. In contrast to the alternative, it's not such a harsh outcome. And also, it, it uh, in some ways, it could be a blessing. I think the Gibeonites uh, are incorporated into Israel. They're incorporated as hewers of wood and drawers of water, but that means that they are serving, uh, probably serving the tabernacle. Uh, and the same thing would be true of the city that's in view here. It would become uh, a, a people in service to Israel. Over time, they could be incorporated into Israel. You could have the men circumcised, and you could actually have this city become part of Israel. Uh, and I think the, the kind of the theological uh, root behind this Maybe as the uh, promise to Abraham that those who bless him will be blessed and those who curse him will be cursed. Uh, the city that opens to 
Israel, that receives Israel, will receive at least a downflow blessing of Abraham, even if they aren't don't become Israelites. They become they are they're blessed by be, being incorporated in a secondary way into Israel, uh, but a city that closes itself against against Israel is closing itself to that Abrahamic blessing. It's it's a as it were cursing Abraham, and so it receives the harsher treatment of a city that uh, refuses to make peace with Israel. So I think that blessing and curse uh, goes back to Deuter- uh, goes back to the book of Genesis. I think that's uh, running behind this. The distinction between these two kinds of um, between these two types of cities and the reception that two cities give to Israel. Yeah, that that's very helpful. Um, I've read this just in terms of it's a treaty. They have they enter into um, a vassal status, uh, and the, the English language forced labor envisions some kind of prison camp or something. But I don't think that's the point. It's there, there's requirements that they will have to meet for labor and uh, tribute, uh, and they'll serve Israel. But that doesn't mean that they become um, some sort of prison city or, yeah, or that Israel is going to have just Egyptian-style taskmasters standing over everybody. They, like you said, Peter, they'll, they'll be in service to Israel and treaty with Israel, and that's actually uh, quite an offer. Uh, it's it's an offer of peace. It's an offer of prosperity as well. Blessings of Abraham. Yeah, I I, I think that's that's right, Jeff. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's it's the same word that's used when Solomon um, enrolls um, Israel. I can't remember how it's translated, but it's probably translated something like drafted. Um, people as laborers um but he, he does that from all israel to be involved in the construction of the temple and and so on and and so yeah I, I don't think we need to see this as like uh prisoner of war type activities and and then kind of when you get through to um ezra 2 and, and the list of clans who return from israel you, you get a big list of solomon's servants which include lots of non israelite names and and so these kind of um laborers both israelite and um uh otherwise w- w- would get enrolled into israel's um number and, and th- this would be a great blessing for them you have an interesting description of solomon's policy in second chronicles 8 verses 7 to 8 all the people who were left of the hittites the amorites the perizzites the hivites and the jebusites who were not of israel from their descendants who were led who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel had not destroyed. These Solomon drafted as forced labor, and so they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves for his work. They were soldiers and his officers, the commanders of his chariots and his horsemen. And it seems that this might be a an application of, of that principle. And I wonder whether this is also a more general policy that would be applied to people outside of the citadels, people within the more general land um, of Canaan at certain points. I think just to, just to confirm the the thread that we're the thread that we're following, you think through what it means for somebody to become servants of Israel. That's the language that's used at the end of verse 11, force labor and you shall serve them. But we've already had Sabbath laws in Deuteronomy 
that focus on generous treatment of slaves, servants. Servants in the house have to be given rest along with every other member of the house. They become part of the household. Uh, servants are released, you know, bond servants who debt servants or servants who are are paying off some property crime. They have to be released after a period of time. And then there's a constant emphasis in the law on Israel's treatment of those who are in low positions, uh, and uh, Israel is supposed to care for them and to do justice to them. So uh, to say that they become servants of Israel, definitely a subordinate position, definitely under Israel's authority. But then you have to see that in the light of the the demand that Israel, uh, the Yahweh's the demand that Israel treat uh, their servants well. I think the same thing goes on in the in the second example. If the city uh, refuses to open and stays closed to Israel, all the men of the city are put to the edge of the sword. We'll come back to that in a second. Uh, but verse 14 says, the women, the children, the animals, all that's in the city, it shall be spoil. You shall eat the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord has given you. So it's the Lord is giving a kind of wealth to Israel in terms of uh, women, wives, children, animals are given over by Yahweh for Israel's consumption. So what we have now, all the men are dead, which means that we have the women who are married are now widows. The children uh, are now all orphans, at least they're orphaned partially because they don't have their fathers. But um, again, all the other laws about caring for orphans and widows kick in. So Israel has imposed widowhood and orphan status on these people, but that doesn't mean that they're now free to abuse them because Yahweh requires that uh, they treat widows and orphans and seek their and protect their interests. So I think that you can't isolate the laws of war uh, and the harshness of the laws of war. It's genuinely harsh, uh, but you can't isolate the, those from the rest of the law and and uh, make it make it look harsher than it is. Is Israel, if they're if they are following Yahweh's commandments, uh, then they would not just wipe out the men of the city, but that they would also care for those who are left that are left unprotected. That's extremely helpful. I don't think I've thought about the context like that before. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Peter, you said you'd come back to the end of verse 13, uh, yeah. putting nails to the sword. What What did you have in mind of bringing out about that? I, I didn't have anything particular in mind. I just thought we should discuss it. Did you have something in mind? No. I was hoping you, <laughs> you had something. <laughs> Other than to say that, um, again, there's some restraint here. Uh which in the ancient Near Eastern world did not exist in terms of uh, what you would do to a city that refused your peace and that you besieged and then you finally took over. Uh, a whole lot of restraint about uh, everyone except for the males. And I'm assuming here it would be the male. Would it be all the males or just the males who are of military age? Um at any rate, the 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 men in the city are held responsible for uh, the city's destruction, and not everybody else. And so there's no there uh, there's no excess here. Um, there's there's just a simple slaughter execution of the responsible men, um, and in at least in the ancient Near Eastern world, that seems like a mercy. Yeah, I'm guessing that the not all 
males, but um, men of fighting age would be executed. Uh, verse 14 says women and children. You know, maybe, maybe we can't uh, lean a whole lot on that children, but that would include both both boys and girls, presumably. Yeah, and I, I think that yeah, your point your point about the responsibility of the men is I think uh, one aspect of it. You think about the incentives that incentive dynamics of this situation. Israel offers peace. If they offer peace, the men will be humiliated by becoming servants and being put to forced labor, but they'll survive. Uh, if they harden themselves against Israel, if they close themselves to Israel, then it's just it's not just a matter of responsibility, but they've uh, refused the choice that would en- enable the people to survive, even if in a, a subordinate position. So yeah, they, they, it's not like they didn't have any choice in the matter. They were given a choice. That was the that's how the rules are set up, that they're given a choice whether they make peace with Israel or or they make war with Israel. And I guess the other part, the other part I said responsibility, the thing that was eluding my memory. The other thing I would suggest is that you're you're probably eliminating a further threat. Because if you leave the men in the city, they could mount further opposition. They could you kind of, you know, Israel backs off of their siege. They think everything's good, but the men decide they're going to rebel again. This inhibits that uh, holding the people, holding the men responsible, but also inhibiting a further resistance that leads to more war. The explicit commandment um, here that these uh, the, the cities near to Israel in, in verse seventeen um, and before actually and sixteen are to be devoted to um, destruction. You shall save alive nothing that breathes. I mean, this would. Obviously, um, limit and kind of impose certain um, uh, kind of restraints on when Israel might decide to go to war. I mean, if they were short of cattle or crops or some, something like this, then I mean, going to war against a nearby city would clearly be be no good because you, you couldn't actually profit from it you couldn't take all the uh cattle and crops these had to be caremed exactly what kind of that would have uh, amounted to is is obviously another um question but it, it couldn't it couldn't be a kind of um a raiding stroke plundering that we kind of read of in judges let's say when the midianites sweep in and take the crops and then and and then go um and so these um these laws would obviously have a um, um, a very concrete effect on when Israel did and didn't chose to go to war, uh, choose to go to war. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, kind of inhibits the uh, war as marauding, war as piracy. Uh, the, the other, the other uh, thing that was lingering in my mind in my earlier comment, I was talking about how you have to see the laws of war in the context of the other laws. So verse 14, again, women, children, animals they're spared. What happens to them? Uh, Jeff, you rightly pointed out that this is a mercy in the context of general conduct of ancient warfare. If you conquered a city and there were women in it, they're going to get raped. Uh, they're free game. They're they're fair game. Um, uh, you know that's that continues uh, right up into uh, the late Roman period, as uh, as Augustine uh, deals with in the in the city of God. They're still uh, raping female captives. But then uh, in the very next chapter, we're going to have a rule about what a man does when he sees a beautiful captive woman and desires her. And it's not rape. 
it's a very, he has to take her as wife. Uh, he has to give her uh, time to mourn for her parents that she's been uh, taken away from. Uh, she has to be, uh, she's not allowed to become a slave. So there are protections for the woman uh, who is captured from a city and uh, not permitted, again, not permitted to just take her and rape her, but has to uh, have to, has to uh, inc basically incorporate her into an Israelite into an Israelite setting, and she becomes a free Israelite if if the man lets her go and doesn't want to be her husband anymore. So again, the the harshness of this law uh, is somewhat mitigated when you see how the aftermath would work out in the light of the the subsequent chapter. Yeah, I mean, Peter, you mentioned that this was continuing to until Roman times. I mean, goodness, it's, it's continuing until the present day i mean this has happened in right in right israel um i'm i'm pretty sure it's um i'm pretty sure a lot of russian armies did this did this re relatively recently you know it, it's um yeah this is not a thing of the past over two million german women were gang raped by the red army after world war Two. right right yeah yeah good, great point um it's not just it's, it's not just an ancient an ancient practice might also think of the practice that's implicit in um, the Song of Deborah and Barak in um, Judges 5, when the mother of Sisera is imagined looking through her window and wondering where Sisera is, why is he taking so long? And then the princess is answering that they've, they're dividing the spoil and each man has a womb or two. Um, that is the reality of war that this is speaking into. I have a kind of hermeneutical um question for for you all i mean um it feels like there's a um a drive when people are um exegeting texts like this to say well um what's going on here is um a lot better than what might have gone on with other nations almost certainly did go on with um other nations and and, and so on and that feels right to me and alistair mentioned i think probably Will, it will be last week now um uh about jesus saying that divorce was um uh permitted due to the hardness of of heart um i'm i'm i'd like to discuss kind of how we square that with texts that say that the law of the lord is uh per is perfect you know and and um uh and and pure in in, in what it says and also to discuss kind of the the extent to which we rely on Jesus's pronouncement about uh, divorce there. Are there kind of clues in the Old Testament um, itself that uh, we could use to say that this isn't kind of trying to prescribe some ideal, but is about kind of damage limitation quite a lot? Well, I guess one, one way to do it might sound like a dodge, but one way to do it would be to say, uh, the law is perfect for the circumstances in which it's given, which is in a world that's uh, has uh, that has uh, sin and evil operative in it and injustices. It's not it's not a law that's perfect in the sense that it assumes a perfect world, but it's a perfect it's a perfect law for it's a perfect law for the fallen world. I guess another 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 way to handle it would be to ask to kind of probe the question of what what counts as perfect, and I don't. I'd have to think more about how the terminology works in in this case, but 
at least in certain circumstances, perfect doesn't have the connotation of uh, flawless. And then I'm not I'm not implying that it, that the law is flawed, but it has more of the overtone of maturity, or yeah, more of the overtone of overtone of maturity or wisdom, maybe. And perhaps that's the connotation in the uh, in the declarations that the law of the Lord is perfect. It's it is saying something about its flawlessness, but the emphasis might be more on the fact that it's uh, it's the it's like the fruit of seasoned wisdom. You know that might fit with the the psalmist declaration, Psalm one nineteen, that he's wiser than all his teachers because he keeps the commandments of Yahweh. There's a uh, maturation that goes on from the Torah that's that and a kind of perfecting maturing that goes on in the study of the Torah uh, that is uh, gives you a maturity beyond your years, as it were. On that front, I would add that people often read the law almost as a a brute reality. There's just these series of commandments. But yet, the way that a book like Deuteronomy is laid out encourages us to reflect upon the inner inner rationale of these commandments, not least in the way that the um, chapters 6 to 26 unpack the Ten Commandments in sequence. And so we're encouraged, as we're doing within this series, to think about the reasons for these laws, not just to take them as a brute reality, but to think about how does this follow from the logic of the commandment? How does this illumine the logic of the commandment? How is this applying the logic of the commandment to a particular situation? And I think that enables us to hold, on the one hand, the perfect, the ideal, the original divine situation, as we see, for instance, in Genesis 1 and 2, and then to deal with the messy and um, complex reality of a fallen world, and yet to hold those things side by side, which is what Jesus does in the teaching concerning divorce. He doesn't deny the legitimacy of the teaching concerning divorce that Moses gave, but rather he contextualizes that in terms of the original divine design, which is also given in Moses in the context of Genesis 1-2. to Now, it seems that that is a helpful way of understanding these sorts of commandments, which are accommodated to a very um, a, a situation that's very different from our own, a situation that is one of ancient warfare, but is also related to this overarching commandment in You Shall Not Murder. And as we learn the logic of these things, we're able to see that particular application in terms of the greater principle to recognize the ways in which it is accommodated to an imperfect reality, and to recognize the way it can be a good accommodation. Uh, law is not an idealistic, good law is not an idealistic counsel of perfection. It has to be something that is enforceable, something that will be effective, something that will mitigate the problems within a particular situation. And this connection, I think, between the commandment that's at the heart, the um, sixth commandment concerning murder, and these particular applications enable us to recognize the imperfect nature of the situation, to have something that's effective in mitigating it, and to have moral clarity about the direction in which we could move forward in uh, mitigating things further. And so I think that sort of literacy that we gain from the study of a book like Deuteronomy enables us to hold the imperfect character of the situation subject to an effective 
and realistic law while also holding the um, perfect law as a standard by which to be clear about what we're doing in those instances. The last section of this chapter uh, turns to siege works and specifically prohibits Israel from destroying fruit trees to make siege works. They can make siege works from other sorts of trees, verse 20 says, but they may not cut down fruit trees. This links up with uh, a series of series of laws in this section of, in the sixth word section of Deuteronomy that we've already highlighted, where trees come into play in one in one way or another. It's in the forest that uh, a man is cutting trees, and the the uh, axe head flies off and kills his companion. That's the instance of accidental death that's given in the in the laws of the cities of refuge. And the word tree or wood is used there several times. The end of chapter 21, we're back to trees, and the body of a dead man is not to hang on tree overnight. So there's this recurring theme that uh, I don't think we've, I haven't, I haven't figured out how that's working. But at least in this instance, it's it's dealing with uh, fruit trees and siege works, and uh, rightly taken as a limitation on Israel's conduct of war. They can't engage in total war against the land, against everything in the land. Um, there are certain things that are off limits to the, to them that they can't destroy, even if it has, uh, even if it would have military use, it, it'd be uh, useful militarily. They can't destroy the trees. Uh, they have to make a distinction between trees. There's several other dimensions of this. One, one issue is the rationale that's given in verse at the end of verse 19 is the tree of the field a man that it should be besieged by you that's the way my new american standard reads the king james version actually says something quite quite different from this it says that uh, a tree is a man's life or something along those lines so it, it's almost the opposite um and the reason why the trees are supposed to be preserved is because they produce life-giving fruit and uh, you so the the that in that case the prohibition against fighting against the trees is the main aim is to preserve human life rather than saying you don't make war against the trees because they're non-combatants they're not making war, war against you so you don't you don't chop them down rather it's this tree is providing food and therefore it's providing life and you don't you don't destroy the life giving this life giving plant uh, in order to build your instruments of death as it were. The King James way of translating it seems right to me. Maybe James has a comment on the Hebrew, but the whole thing here is about food, about eating, about the trees being um, food uh, for you and for others. Uh, so there's a concern here to make sure that the land is not stripped of all the plants that provide food for people. I mean, I guess this would, if Israel took it over, then they wouldn't have any food. If Israel left the the, uh, the city um, after, after the battle, there wouldn't be food. So in either case, the concern seems to be that the land be able to produce food for the people that live there. Yeah, and food also for other creatures. Um, I mean, because the, the trees are part of an ecosystem, and uh, 
you know, animals, animals will be sustained. Birds will be sustained by what, what the trees produce. I assume that this would be, this would extend to other plants. I mean, the reason why trees are singled out because they're, they could be used for siege works, but if you have a vineyard, would that come under the same restrictions? My guess would be yes, that they couldn't touch vineyards either. Uh, and other kinds of uh, fruiting trees, which means that that would that would be sustaining not just human life but uh, the animal life. They're not supposed to make war on creation in making war on the city. Some something that might, I guess, follow from this. I mean, if 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 you do read the end of chapter nineteen, um, uh, sorry, first nineteen, as um, are the trees in the field human? Like uh, you know that they should be besieged by you, which feels kind of relatively natural to me uh, at least you you have to sort of insert um life if you're going to follow the king james's reading which you know i wouldn't rule out but i mean but if you if you do follow what the esv has then there's something like slightly jarring about it in that it's like you can go and besiege a city and you can kill all the males and possibly also all the women and children and cattle and so on in there, but you're not allowed to kill the trees around it. There's something sort of slightly um, jarring about reading it that way. But I wonder if if that could then lead us to kind of see this city as having done something that it very clearly knows is wrong and 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 is therefore culpable for i mean it talks about if a city opens up to you doesn't it and again that reminds me very much of um uh jericho there's this sort of slightly unusual phrase that's described that um at the start of probably joshua six or seven is it and that describes how josh uh how jericho is, is shut and and some translations have it as something like within and 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 without but it's kind of it's it's totally um locked up and and uh, i.e it's the exact opposite of of open and i i wonder if we're you know jericho knew they recognized um god's sovereignty they, they recognized what he'd done to egypt um and yet refused to open up to um to israel and I wonder if kind of the idea, if we do follow this reading of, of the trees, is, is that the, the city is guilty, you know, the whole city and can can be killed, but the trees shouldn't be um, caught up in that. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to sort of think through the implications of um, reading it one way or the other. Gary North has a really interesting section in his uh, commentary on Deuteronomy on this passage, and he makes the kind of obvious point that I hadn't thought of until he made it, that um, presumably the trees are outside, you know, vineyards and orchards are not going to be within the city walls. So the the fruit of the tree is not feeding the people who are being besieged. It's feeding the people who are outside, which means Israel is being sustained by the fruit on the tree. They're, they're the ones who have have access to it. And then he's, he sets that up, he sets that point up and then makes the interesting biblical theological argument that you have a contrast between a, a city that's under siege cut off from their fruit trees and their and their surrounding food supplies israel is deliberately cutting them off to maintain the siege so death is taking hold on the inside of the city while outside the city you have life 
uh, and takes that back to takes that back to the Edenic situation and suggests that the Israelites are kind of in a cherubic position standing between the city and its and its fruit trees the uh, its source of life as it were the way that the city can get to its source of life would be to surrender so if they uh, if they had done what the uh, if they if you have a city in the situation of verse 10 offer terms of peace if they want to keep alive and they want to have access to their orchards and their vineyards then they should surrender at the beginning uh, presumably they can surrender later i'm I, I think that's probably the case that uh even though the the siege is begun they can surrender later and they would be under the under the rules of uh verses uh 10 through 12 rather than uh, have everyone being slaughtered um but their surrender gives them access to the kind of edenic world outside so um that that uh, that was just an angle on it that i hadn't i hadn't uh I hadn't comprehended, but just that contrast between the city being enclosed, a place where people are dying, if the siege goes on, and and the siege can go on. North points out the siege can go on because the besiegers have food sources; <laughs> they haven't destroyed their food sources, uh, and so that they can they can maintain the siege for a long time. They don't have to have these long supply lines because they're living off the land around the city that is being uh, that's being uh, that's not being destroyed. So they can they can besiege a long time, if if the city wants to uh, stop being a city of death and gain life by joining with Israel and becoming Israel's servants. They can do that any time, and there's this kind of reentry into Eden motif that's uh, that's running behind it, which I, I thought that was I thought that was pretty cool. The question of inheritance here might also be important. That um, in warring against a city that is not part of their inheritance, they should not, even if they're seeking to uproot people from. Um, unfaithful or wicked people who've attacked them from their inheritance, they're not to destroy the inheritance itself. And so the preservation of the fruit trees preserve the livability of that particular location. They're not engaging in a scorched earth policy against their enemies. There is the expectation that people will go back to inhabit that land and it will provide for the people. They're not destroying the earth. And that, I suppose, also could take us back to some of the basic principles that we encounter in Genesis 1 to 2, and even 3, about the relationship between the earth and man, that the man, that man's sin is punished in some way through the earth, but the earth is not placed under the judgment in quite the same way as the man. Um, the earth becomes a mediator of divine judgment to the man, but is not itself judged in the same way as um, fallen humanity. Well, I, I I like the um idea that you were talking about, Peter, that um in a sense then you've got trees of life and death around the um city rather than a tree of life and death. I mean the the trees kind of provide life for the people um sieging, but the ones that are cut down to build siege works, they they become trees of death for, for the city, in a sense. Maybe I could say something quickly just about this whole um, notion of, of murder and kind of bring it all um, back to that. So something that strikes me as significant about um, this whole section is the way in which murder kind of stains uh, a land and, and has these ongoing um, uh, has this ongoing impact to it. And even in terms of the um, 
what you do to the wildlife and, and, and to the trees, it, it, it's meant to, um, uh, there, there are costs there as well. And so we, we saw it with manslaughter. We're going to see it into, in the next chapter in terms of an unsolved murder. And it, it reminds me of the way in which um, Paul talks about the law as something that somehow increases sin or, or, or magnifies trespass or, or, or something along that those lines. I've, I've been going through Romans um, recently, and, and that's sort of something I've been thinking about in the context of Romans um, chapter 5, the, the, the way in which um, law isn't exactly reckoned in some way at least uh, sin isn't exactly reckoned where, where there is no law and it just feels to me that to a large part sodom was judged for sodom's sin and kind of just standalone cities on the whole in israel were judged for their own sin but there's a sense in which the giving of the law kept a record of sin and kind of allowed sin to mount up in a land and accumulate for generations and and kind of roll over to generations beyond a generation in in a way that just wasn't previously possible that the mosaic law kind of defined a community and and allowed sin to build up within it and that just strikes me as a a, a very significant aspect of of what's going on kind of uh here in Deuteronomy and as Israel's history unfolds and of course as Jesus dies um on behalf of Israel he 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 doesn't kind of die as this kind of isolated um individual but rather he he dies according to the law in 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 one sense you know the curse of the law um comes upon him but because the law has this um ability if if you like within it of preserving sin and and kind of um uh and having this memory of sin within it G- jesus can die as this sin bearer for all israel and, and ultimately for all humanity in, in the same way as the those who rejected him could have the blood of abel the blood of all the innocent martyrs come upon on uh on their heads so jesus could bear um the the whole sin of um humanity insofar as he stepped into um this law of his of israel's that had that memory of sin within it thank you again for enjoying this episode of the theopolis podcast for more information and for more content from theopolis you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com we release new articles every tuesday and thursday on our blog so you'll want to make sure to look out for those you can also find us on twitter at underscore theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.